So if you have a Bible, uh, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 2? If you're using one of the red Bibles um, available in your seats, Genesis chapter 2 is on page 1. Because we're in Genesis, which is the beginning of the book. It's the beginning of this story. Um, and we've said all, all along that uh, this is the foundation of the story. It's the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation of everything we believe. Uh, we've looked at how God has created everything. Um, we've looked at how God created mankind and has called us and invited us to work in this world for his glory. And this morning, we're going to look at another uh, sort of institution of creation. We're going to look at marriage. What is God's design for marriage? And so we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. This is after the Lord has made Adam. He's put him in the garden. And then he says this in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place in the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the truth of what you call us to in marriage. We pray now through the preaching of your word that you convict us in your spirit and lead us to the hope that you offer us in your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. In this passage, we see the first wedding. The first wedding between the first man and the first woman, the first husband, the first wife. This is the principal passage on marriage. We'll see Jesus refer to this passage when he teaches about marriage. Paul will refer to this passage when he teaches about marriage. This passage teaches us what God's design is for marriage. And do you see what marriage can produce? Look at the end, at verse 24. We read that the two shall become one flesh. And that's not just physically coming together, but it's the creation of an entirely new thing. Uh, a, a third reality. Two individuals come together and create something new. Marriage creates something new, something different, something greater than the sum of of the two parts. That 
is the beauty of marriage. That is God's design for marriage. And it's in this marriage <clears throat> that man and woman together are best suited to fulfill God's design for creation to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God. And so this morning, if you're married, this passage can help us grow in our own marriages, to strengthen our relationships with our spouses, to encourage us as we live and work and worship together. But if you're not married, learning about marriage from this passage can help you become the kind of man or woman ready for marriage, to help you discern if marriage is on the table for you now or not. But for all of us, married couples, single individuals, for all of us, learning about marriage can strengthen our understanding of God's love for us. Throughout the Bible, the scriptures use images and terms relating to marriage to describe God's relationship to his people, both in our unfaithfulness to him and of his steadfast love towards us. And so we go to this passage not only to learn about marriage, but to learn about God's love for us so that we can experience it deeper and demonstrate it to a watching world that God loves them. And as we do look at this passage, we're going to see that God's design for marriage includes three things. It includes unity, a priority, and intimacy. Unity, a priority, and intimacy. So let's look at unity. We pick up this story of God having first formed man, Adam, and placing him in the garden to work it and to worship God and to obey God. But we see that not all is good in the garden. For verse 18 says, it is not good that man should be alone. It's not good for Adam to be by himself. I will make him a helper fit for him. Thus, the Lord makes Eve, the first woman, out of a rib from the side of Adam and presents her to Adam to be his wife. And there's two things I want you to see about Eve. First, God created her to be a helper for her husband. Now, for some people, when they hear this word helper, you might think, or maybe you've heard, that this implies that the wife is to be somehow an assistant to the husband, or that there's some subordination that the wife brings into the marriage, that somehow a wife is inferior to her husband. However, this word helper actually is always, almost always, associated with strength. It's actually used to describe the stronger of the two parties, when describing two things. In fact, this word is used of God himself as he relates to Israel, especially in times of battles, when the Lord fights on behalf of Israel. The Lord is Israel's helper. Imagine if you are a soldier on the front lines of a battle and you are losing. You and your fellow men and women are terrified that you are going to lose the battle, but then all of a sudden, reinforcements come. 
someone comes and brings what you need to supply what is lacking, and there is great joy and relief because reinforcements have come. A helper has come. That is what is described of Eve. She is there as a helper to supply what is lacking in Adam. And so the wife is created to supply what is lacking in the husband, and in this context, Eve shows up to save Adam from his solitude. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone, and so God made a helper for him. But we also need to see that this helper is made fit for Adam, or, or suitable for him. This is explained further in the story, where Adam is given the charge to name the animals. And so the Lord brings every beast of the field and bird of the heavens by, and Adam exercises his dominion over the world, and he names these creatures, but there is no creature in all of the world who is fit for him, who is suitable for him, who is like him. Remember, man was made in the image of God. That's what separates us as humans from the rest of the created world. And so for Adam, there is no one in all of creation likewise made in the image of God suitable to be his partner. So the Lord takes a rib from Adam, takes something of the substance of Adam, and uses that to make Eve. Eve is made of the same stuff as Adam. She, likewise, now is made in the image of God. They are equal. They have equal value and dignity and worth, both husband and wife, men and women. This is true not only in all of creation, but within a marriage. Before God's eyes, husbands and wives are of equal value. No one is to dominate over the other. She is a helper fit for him, suitable for him, because she is made of the same stuff. And so we see between Adam and Eve this essential equality and supplemental activity. They are both made of the same stuff, and yet they bring something to the table that is lacking in the other. I like the image of a like a jigsaw puzzle piece. Both made of the same material and yet different, but different in the same unique way that when put together, it creates a beautiful picture. These two pieces are better united to one another, greater than just the sum of the two parts separately. This is God's design for marriage. Essential equality and yet supplemental activity. Two people brought together. One way to celebrate this unity in a marriage is to understand how you and your spouse operate differently, but together operate beautifully. I've shared how Sarah and I are uh, completely opposites on the Myers-Briggs personality test. Uh, I'm an ESTJ, she's an INTP. And so in, in every sort of category, we are opposites. And yet, we've learned to allow that to create something more beautiful in our relationship. 
Like, I'm an extrovert. I love being around other people. And she's an introvert. She also loves being around other people, but it drains her, whereas for me, it encourages me and energizes me. And we've learned how, in different situations, to feed off of one another's unique personalities, to better be hospitable to people, to better use our marriage and relationship to welcome people into our lives. How, have, how has God made you unique? different than your spouse, and yet together you create something more beautiful. This is what God's design is for marriage, is unity between the two. But we also see in this passage God's desire for a priority in your marriage. A priority, or in other words, that for, for a marriage to be within God's design, that marriage needs to have a top priority in the lives of one another. Look at verse 24. We read, Moses writes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now Moses is talking about when a child grows up, becomes an adult, leaves his or her parents' household, and creates a new family. But the language that he chooses to use here, leaving father and mother and holding fast to his wife, these two words leaving and holding fast. These are covenantal words. They're words and terms used in the formation of a covenant. Now a covenant, you might remember, it is this kind of relationship between two parties where promises are made between the two and the two parties are bound by those oaths. One party says to the other, I promise to do this for you and you promise to do that for me. Covenant relationships happened all over the place in the ancient world. We read about them in the Bible, between kings of neighboring nations, between rulers and the citizens of a country, even between family and friends. Covenants are established. And we see in the Bible that the Lord, God, relates to his people within the context of a covenant. We read the phrase over and over again, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the foundation of his covenant with us. He promises to be our God, and we say, all right, we will be your people. That is the basic formula of a covenant. We see covenants established with Moses between the Hebrew people and God himself after he rescues them out of Egypt. We see God make a covenant with David between the nation of Israel and God to establish the kingdom and throne forever. And we'll see in Genesis that God makes a covenant with Abraham to bless him and make his name great and to promise this land. Covenants are the way God relates to his people. And a covenant is established when promises are made, when they are agreed upon. There's a formation of a new relationship. A new relationship is established. When people talk about coming into a relationship with Jesus, that, that's really what they're talking about, is, is coming into a covenantal relationship with God through Jesus. We experience and participate in a new relationship with God. We join a new family with God. When we make promises in a covenant relationship, one of those promises is 
to leave behind former relationships, to join this new one, to hold fast to the new one. Like in Israel's case, God says, hey, you have to sever your ties with Egypt and any desire to return there. Sever your ties with any of the nations surrounding you. Do not go to them. Hold fast to me. Or with Jesus, we say, I am no longer going to look to anyone or anything for my fulfillment. I am going to look to you. When we enter into a covenant, we say yes to something while saying no to something else. And we see here, Moses describes marriage in the same way. A marriage is when two people leave their loyalty to their mothers and fathers and bind themselves to one another, holding fast to one another. And in so doing, they create a new loyalty, a new relationship, a new priority in one's life. It means that your new relationship, marriage, takes top priority over everything. Your marriage is more important than your work. Your marriage is more important than your hobbies. Your marriage is more important than your kids or your parents. In order for a marriage to function the way that it was originally designed, you must forsake your parents and hold fast to one another. This doesn't mean you ignore your parents or cancel their calls, no. It means when there is an issue in your marriage, you go to one another first. You don't say, I'm done, I'm calling my mom, I'm going to talk to her. You bind yourself together. To make your relationship a priority means that when you make decisions about children, that decision needs to come down to you and your spouse, not what your parents think. I'm not saying never listen to your parents, obviously. If there's godly wisdom, if there's years of experience and advice, listen to that. But recognize that your spouse is to have the top priority in your marriage. And it's not just prioritizing your marriage over your family. This new covenant means that you sever ties to any previous or potential romantic relationship with anyone else. This is a command for faithfulness and fidelity to your covenant partner. You don't look at another person with longing eyes. You don't think about another person with wishful thinking. You don't dream about another person with lustful desires. God is calling us to a loyal, faithful, covenantal relationship to your spouse. There are some who might object to the idea of needing to formalize relationship in the celebration of a covenant. You might have heard it said, or maybe you've once thought, we don't need a piece of paper to prove our love to one another. I think that people say that because they think that formalizing a relationship, turning it into a marriage, having a, a marriage certificate is in some way limiting or prohibiting the free expression of love for one another. I, I disagree. We enter, we enter relationships with this basic idea that in some way this person fulfills something in me. We, we enter into relationships with other people because we want to get something out of it. 
That's not wrong. You know, Eve and Adam were made for one another. There's some mutuality in that. And we remain in those relationships as long as what we get out of it is more rewarding than what we're putting into it. And the moment that a relationship begins to ask more of you than it's able to give you, well, then we begin to think about leaving, finding someone else, something else that will supply what I need and not ask as much from me. Without a, a recognition of oaths and vows to one another, without these promises made to one another, either party in the relationship could conceivably leave the partnership if they found someone else willing to give them what they want at a smaller cost. Within a covenant marriage, within a formalized marriage, there are oaths and vows and promises made to one another that protect the relationship, especially when it gets difficult for one party or both. At one, at, at that point, when, when it does get difficult, a covenant it serves to protect the relationship. We make promises at weddings. We make vows to be there for one another. We say, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. When we recognize the formality of marriage, it actually serves to protect the love. It doesn't prohibit the love. It protects it. This is the beauty of the marriage covenant. In it, we commit to one another. We hold fast to one another, especially when the days get difficult. We choose one another over anyone or anything else. Finally, let's look at God's design for intimacy in a marriage. And when I say intimacy, like I, I don't mean what maybe many of you are thinking. I don't mean romance or uh, something that happens in the bedroom. I, I mean intimacy as it is shown here in this text. Look at how the passage closes. After Eve is brought to Adam to be his wife, verse 25 says that they were naked and were not ashamed. Now to be naked in this way meant two things. Two related things and yet distinct. First, it meant that they didn't have clothes, and that that's the obvious meaning here. This is uh, important later in the story when their nakedness becomes apparent, and God actually makes the first set of clothing for them to cover their nakedness. And so the first thing we see is, yes, they were naked. They didn't have clothes, but the second thing is, is something deeper. To be naked in this way also means that they were exposed. Everything was revealed. They could not hide anything. There were no secrets. When you're naked, you have nowhere to hide anything. Every part of you is open. And so for Adam and Eve to be naked means more than the mere fact that they didn't have clothes. It meant that before one another, they were completely exposed completely seen and completely known. They knew each other perfectly. Think about early 
in a relationship, maybe early in your relationship with a spouse. What is the goal of spending time with them? You want to get to know them. You, you want to get to know who they are, what kind of person they're like. You spend time with them to get to know them. You bring them around your friends, or you see them around their friends to see who are they in this context. You invite them home for the holidays to visit your parents. Why? You want your family to get to know this person. That's the goal of getting, spending time together, getting to know them. I had a friend in college who uh, was driving with his girlfriend, now wife actually, from Athens, Ohio, up here to Cleveland. And for that four hour drive, he wrote down on 50 flashcards, 50 questions to get to know her more on that drive. He would just ask the question and they talk about it. They'd ask the question and talk about it. They got to know each other so well in that time. That's what we want. We want to get to know other people. But when you're that person that someone else is trying to get to know, what ends up happening? Maybe this happened to you. If you're anything like me, you have this desire uh, to make sure that they are getting to know your best self. You know, we, we try to impress people so that when they get to know us, they like us. And when you go out to dinner, you get all dressed up. You put on your best face. When you meet parents, you put on your best behavior. Want your parents, their parents to like you. In many ways, we present a version of ourselves that is likable. Sometimes that version of ourselves isn't the most honest or accurate version of ourselves. We put on a manufactured version of ourselves in order for someone else to like us. Why? Why do we do that? We do that because we're scared. We're scared that if they really knew us, if they really knew who we were, all of us, well, they wouldn't much like us. We're scared of being rejected. So we hide who we really are, and we only let people in to know the parts of our lives that they want, we want them to know. We're scared of the shame that comes from being known and being rejected. It's humiliating. Maybe that's happened to you before. And this truth isn't only true for romantic relationships. This is true for humanity in general. In any kind of relationship or friendship or community, we only let people in as far as we want them to, so that they only see what we want them to see. They only know us to the extent that we want them to know us, and we will not let them in any further. Because we're scared of feeling the shame of being known and rejected. I've talked previously about the epidemic of loneliness especially in men, but true of most adults. And part of the reason why we're facing this epidemic of loneliness, we're keeping everyone at an arm's length away. And yet in this passage, we see the kind of marriage that God has designed for humans 
is one in which the husband and wife were completely known and did not have any shame. Completely known and without shame. That is intimacy. That is the intimacy that God has designed for marriage. They were completely known and completely welcomed and loved and accepted by the other. How is that possible? How is it possible to live with your spouse and not keep anything from him or her? How is it possible to open yourself up and be vulnerable with your spouse about your pains and your hurts? How can we experience that kind of intimacy today, whether in a marriage or in a community? It's really two different questions. How can we open ourselves up to others without the fear of being crushed? And how can we welcome others in after we get to know who they really are? Those are the two questions. How do we open ourselves up and how do we welcome others in? And actually, those two questions have the same answer. How do we open up without being crushed? How do we welcome someone else who has made themselves known? We remember who we are as the bride of Christ. We have to remember who we are as the bride of Christ. And here's what I mean. We are able to welcome someone. We're able to receive someone who has opened themselves up to us because we remember that Christ has welcomed us. Romans 15, 7 says that we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. And in what way has Christ welcomed us? Did he wait for us to turn our life around? Did he wait for you to get over your addictions? Did he wait for you to improve your character? No. He welcomed you just as you are. We are to welcome one another, including our spouses, just as Christ welcomed us. But Christ did more than just welcome us. He committed himself to us. He made us his own. He made us his bride. He will always love us. He will always accept us and welcome us. And it is because of this promise that he can never go back on that we are able to open ourselves up to others. We're able to open ourselves up to others, including our spouses, without the fear of being crushed because we know that there is someone whose love for us will never cease. It will never leave us. He will not forsake you. How do we know? How do we know that that promise is true and that he will never leave us? We have to look to the cross. It's on the cross where he made his vows to us, where he promised to never forsake us. It is on the cross that Jesus promised himself to us. Only then, only when we remember that we are Christ's bride, that he gave up his life for us, that he has washed us and sanctified us and has presented us beautiful in himself, that we are covered in his righteousness, the most beautiful wedding gown of all. Only then, when we remember that he has welcomed us, then 
we can open ourselves up to others and we can welcome others in. This is the marriage that God has designed. One of great unity. One in which there is a new priority above all others. And one in which there is real intimacy. This is God's design and it points us to his love for us. 